Hi, and welcome back to Spatulas and Speculations. I am your unofficial Professor Lily, and this is the unofficial SJM 101. And today we are going to be doing a character theory. It's not even a character deep dive because there's not much to deep dive on. We're just going to be talking about a character and kind of all the theories that are worked around this one character and just all the stuff that's around them. So there will be Akatar. Well, there's SJM Universe spoilers. I'm just going to throw that out there because I guess we'll talk about yeah, there's SJM Universe spoilers. You know what? I'm just gonna throw that out there. So if you haven't finished reading all of the books within the SJM Universe, save this. Follow me as a happy hermit on all social medias and come back and join the conversation when you are done. Because today we're going to be talking about Meryl. So first we're going to start talking about what Reese did to the House of Wind some odd amount of years ago, and then we're going to start looking into the chronological order of everything we know about her and kind of discuss m my theories and stuff around that, and then go into the theories that I've seen other people have around her and if I think they're possible. So, with that being said, these are my notes. These are what I found. This is how I've done it, and I am human, and I might miss things, and I don't speak for Sarah, and I don't speak for Bloomsbury. And as for my last usual warning thing that we do in the intro here, I do pronounce things wrong. I am trying to get better. In my head, I when I was reading it, I heard mural, but I did look at the audiobook. Again, thank you to the Patreon that they were able to allow me the ability to just randomly buy the audiobook so I could just scan through it and listen for certain names. And the lady in the audiobook says, Meryl. And again, I heard mural. And while that doesn't really sound like a difference to me when I say it, like Meryl, mural, apparently it drives people on TikTok insane. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try really hard to say Meryl and not mural, but just bear with me. It's a recent adjustment for me mentally. So it's going to take a while for it, my brain to catch up just off the cuff. So hopefully this episode, me saying her name out loud a million times, will be very, very good exposure therapy. But let's, let's get into it. Let's start with the history of the House of Wind and the priestesses in the library. One of the most things that people DM me about, I think, it's kind of like a tie. There's a few things, but two of them, sometimes mix, is Meryl and Jezebel and if they could be the same person or if Jezebel could be Clotho. Now, we're, this episode was originally going to be like a, a two-parter episode where it was going to be Meryl and Jezebel and they're going to be separate character deep dives just done in the same episode, but uh, I think we're only going to have time for Meryl and I do have an episode already scheduled for next week, which is a character deep dive on Amran. So, I don't know how that's going to go because then it'd be like three character deep dives in a row and I really sh was only going to do two in a row. So I don't know how that's going to go. We'll see what I decide to do with that. Um, but this episode, the, like looking at Meryl and looking at like the history of the House of Wind and looking at just everything about her, a lot of things like piqued my interest and this was a, a, what originally started my deep dive into mystics because I kind of think that Meryl might be a mystic. We're going to talk about it. But we're going to start at the beginning, which is actually in Akawar 20. 
This is the first time that Farah goes to the library in the house underneath the House of Wind. And somebody on TikTok, I don't, I don't know who it was, bless them because math isn't my first thought to do when it comes to anything, but they somehow calculated, and I don't, I don't know the name of the creator. I, I just know that this is what has happened. Um, she did some math and it turns out the number of floors between the top of the House of Wind and the very bottom of the library or into the library between 10,000 steps would be 666 floors. 666. I just... I don't know if that's serendipity. I don't know if Sarah planned it, but my goodness, that woman is a genius. Or, sh or either Sarah's a genius, Sarah is into the dark arts, <laughs> and or she is the most lucky human being on the planet. If all of this is just serendipity, Sarah J. Mass needs to start doing scratch tickets. I'm just saying. Um... <laughs> So there's that. So the House of Wind is one of my new favorite topics of all time in the SJM universe. It's like Bone Carver, Asriel, House of Wind, Rowan, Aelin. Rowan and Aelin are always like the same to me. They're like the same person. They're married, so they're one body. Um, yeah. And pro then like the Dust Court, like in that order. That's like my favorite thing to talk about. And I think it's just because you know, you read these books and you could have read them. I mean, for me, I've only read them technically twice through, but I've skim read them a hundred million times for the podcast and for the TikToks and whatnot. I mean, we had this discussion on a chaos episode, but like the house of wind is all red stone. And, you know, just like it was something that I saw with my eyes, but did not click in my brain. But now whenever I'm in the house of wind in any of the books, whenever I see the red stone, I circle it. Every single time, redstone, circle it. Every single time. Um, it's just one of those things. But the House of Wind library has been there for an undisclosed amount of time. Before Reese, it was always a library at the bottom of the House of Wind. The House of Wind was built by an ancient high lord um, as his home. And then Reese ends up acquiring the townhouse and then the river house. So the House of Wind is basically... A castle. I would say it's a castle. Castles have big fat libraries. Castles are home to a whole slew of people. So I think house is a loose term. <laughs> I mean, it's a gigantic mountain that's built into and it has 666 levels, apparently, according to math, which I can't question because I can barely count on my fingers. And it's built of redstone, the whole mountain, redstone. It's insane to me. Did not pick that up my one until one random night where it just popped and in, clicked into my head. My biggest question that I've always had, just in general, is since even my first read of Silver Flames, like I actually have had, I don't know if I still have it anymore because my phone, I did switch phones and I deleted a bunch of drafts, but I do have... A video somewhere of me questioning right after I finished at Court of Silver Flames the like two days after it came out I was like if there are 10,000 steps to get to the main level 
uh, I don't know, to get somehow to get outside, right? How is it that Nesta and the priestesses were going between the top training center and the library below without having to go through all 10,000 steps. And I've talked about it in lives before. I'm like, is there just like a nun pole that they're all just spinning around? <laughs> Are there, like, because technically you're not supposed to be able to winnow within the House of Wind. And in that, this chapter, in A Court of Wings and Ruin, chapter 20, Farrah actually comments on this because Reese winnows within the library. And she's like, I thought you're not supposed to be allowed to winnow but in the house of wind and reese goes i think the library just has its own rules which seems like sarah's going doing a little yada yadaing which is fair and is allowed to happen and i kind of like when she points it out herself when she's kind of yada yadaing because i think it's fair to say that anytime that sarah does yada yada anything plot wise magic system wise she does call herself out on it so anytime that we think that something could be yada yada but nobody calls it out i almost wonder if it's not a yada yada but something that's going to come to fruition maybe later on because like i said she will call herself out on her yada yadaing or her bsing which i think is lovely and i think is great and kind of it makes me smile i'm sure it frustrates other people but it kind of makes me giggle and it allows me to be like okay some stuff we can look into other stuff we don't have to Oof, I don't even know where I went with this. Um, oh, so, like, how did, <laughs> how did they get from, like, the training, like, how did the priestesses in the library go to training? How did Nesta get down to the library without having to go through all those stairs? Is there an elevator we don't know about? And if there is, why couldn't she just take in the elevator outside? What, like, what is the nonsense? And the only, the closest answer I could get to this is the first time we actually go to the House of Wind library. And it says this. This is kind of in the middle of their conversation because I kind of, I cut it, which there's actually a lot of stuff we could talk about in this conversation. And my goodness, every time I open up any SJM book, I just find more questions and more things that tickle me. But it starts with the, 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 the conversation is in the middle and they go like this. Because books are full of magic and things they wanted to keep humans from knowing. Reese slid his hands into his pockets, leading me down a corridor lit by only bowls of fey light upraised in the hands of beautiful female statues, their forms high fey and fairy alike. The scholars and librarians refused to keep slaves of their own, some for personal reasons, but mainly because they didn't want them accessing the books and the archives. Reese gestured down another curving stairwell. We must have been far beneath the mountain the air dry and cool and heavy, as if it had been trapped inside for ages. So they're talking about the history of before the wall and how information was there freely. Unfortunately, we actually are jumped. Chapter 20 starts when Farah and Reese are already basically at the library. So we're jumping into the middle of whatever they've got going on that day, which... Like, just one sentence of, like, <laughs> I don't know. I just wish for tiny, tiny... Because I know Sarah knows. I know Sarah knows how this works. I know she's already got it. Like, she's she, she's so smart and so genius, she, and she's working on so many other things that she's just, like, they'll, they, they'll know. They'll know how it works. And, like, bestie Sarah, no, we don't. And the reason I can confidently say that I think Sarah knows how the 
inner workings of the House of Wind works is because she said herself in interviews, like, if a character is eating a piece of fruit, she likes to think about how did that character get that fruit in their hands? Was there trading? What's the seasons like? What's the seasons like in other continents? Like, she's talking about how that's got the kind of the world building that she finds interesting to herself when she's writing. And even, um, and, like, when she's working on the world building for Crescent City, she's like, when I'm writing, like, Bryce walking down the street, she's like, I know all the shops that Bryce is walking past. I can picture them all in my head. So, like, I know, I know in my heart that Sarah knows how you get from point A to point B in the House of Wind, but she doesn't tell us that, and it drives me absolutely insane. Does this have anything to do with Meryl? Absolutely not. Do I want to just talk about it anyways? Yes, like I said, House of Wind is one of those things that I just love talking about. Fun fact, <laughs> because I'm talking about things, like, I just kind of, like, stirred into my brain, because we're talking about the House of Wind, talking about interviews and stuff that Sarah has said. A Court of Mist and Fury... I think I might have even talked about it on this podcast. I know I've emailed... Somebody asked me in an email about this, and for some reason I have the answer to it. The title, A Court of Mist and Fury, was actually not the original title. It was meant to be A Court of Wind and Fury, which does not flow, and I don't know if it doesn't flow because I'm just so used to saying A Court of Mist and Fury instead of A Court of Wind and Fury, but wind is actually a big, a prevalent topic in today's episode. Um, so I think it's interesting that she, that was like she really wanted it to be a court of wind and fury, house of wind, um, the whispering winds, which we're going to talk about in a little bit here. Wind seems to be a background. It's in the background, but it's a it's a it's something that's been there, and she's been hinting at, kind of drawing our attention to over and over and over again about wind. Now, the reason why that the title is not A Court of Wind and Fury is because, apparently, as she says, I don't, I didn't know this until she said it, maybe someone who lives in the UK will be giggling as I talk about it, but wind is like another way to talk about a fart. <laughs> and I think, to the best of my knowledge, I actually think that Sarah originally signed with Bloomsbury UK or that you, the UK used to be Bloomsbury's main whatevering and the people in the UK were like, you cannot have that as your title. It is highly inappropriate and Sarah kind of like begrudgingly changed it to Mist, which Mist is also a pretty predominant um, thing that she's kind of been directing our attention to throughout the series. So it kind of works both ways, but I think it's really interesting and something to keep in mind that she thought wind was so important that she had wanted to put it in the title of Akmaf. But it wasn't Akmaf. It would be Akawaf. <laughs> Which I don't, doesn't flow. So again, Akmaf fits so perfectly. I think it's, it's interesting that so many like, all Akatar, Akamath, Akawar, Akafas, Akasif, all flow so easily. And I was really nervous when we were getting the title of Crescent City 3 that it would... I mean, eventually we're probably going to get a House of Many Waters, but if you try to say, like, H, House of Many Waters, H-O-M-W, home, it doesn't flow very nice, whereas Hofas flows very well, so... We're lucky there. I am... Oh my goodness. Anyways, <clears throat> back to the library. The library itself is at the bottom of some curving redstone stairs, and then there's a long passageway 
that reveals a, a long passageway of carved redstone and a sealed set of obsidian doors, veins of silver running throughout, beautiful, terrifying, like some great beast was kept behind them. Obsidian, obviously, we're gonna, that's going to raise your heckles. We're going to get the redstone. You guys know that I think the House of Wind is built from at least some of it, most of it, all of it, <laughs> is blood salt. And I think that also that there's some obsidian in there. Just, it's raising my heckles that, like, something about that really itches me. But we learn this about the history when Reese and Vera are talking. And it goes like this. She's one of the dozens of priestesses who work here. Clotho lowered her head in a bow, but said nothing. I, I didn't know that the priestesses left their temples. A library is a temple of sorts, Reese said with a wry smile. But the priestesses here, as we entered the library proper, golden lights flickered to life, as if Clotho had been in utter darkness until we entered. They are special, unique. She angled her head in what might have been amusement. Her face remained in shadow, her slim body concealed in those pale, heavy robes. Silence, and yet life danced around her. Rhi smiled warmly at the priestess. Did you find the texts? And it was only when she bobbed her head in a sort of so-so motion that I realized she could not, or would not, speak. Clotho gestured to her left into the library itself, and I dragged my eyes away from the mute priestess long enough to take in the library. Not a cavernous room in a manner, not even close. This was... It was as if the base of the mountain had been hollowed out by some massive digging beast, leaving a pit descending into the dark heart of the world. Around that gaping hole, carved into the mountain itself, spiraled level after level of shelves and books and reading areas, leading into inky black. From what I could see of the various levels as I drifted towards the carved stone railing overlooking the drop, the stacks shot far into the mountain itself, like the spokes of a mighty wheel. And through it all, fluttering like moth's wings, the rustle of paper and parchment, silent, yet alive, awake and humming and restless, some many-limbed beasts at constant work. I peered upward, finding more levels rising towards the house above and lurking far below, darkness. And then she goes on to note that, again, the floors were red stone, like the rest of the place, but smooth and polished. Reese and Farah end up further down, talking, and Farah says, I knew we should begin working, but I asked, are all the priestesses in the library like her? Yes. The word held centuries of rage and pain. I made this library into a refuge for them. Some come to heal, work as acolytes, and then leave. Some take the oath to the cauldron and the mother to become priestesses and remain here forever. But it belongs to them, whether they stay a week or a lifetime. Outsiders are allowed to use the library for research, but, but only if the priestesses approve and only if they take binding oaths to do no harm while they visit. This library belongs to them. Who was here before them? A few cranky old scholars who cursed me soundly when I 
when I relocated them to other libraries in the city. They still get access, but when and where is always approved by the priestesses. We get a bit of information on the timelines in this particular chapter regarding Reese and Moore, the library, the war, all that stuff, and when Reese became the High Lord. So Moore and Reese, as he says, as quote unquote children, oiled up the 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 ramping system in the library to try and sled down it and they got in trouble by Reese's mother as kids he says as children and I think that's interesting because I think and I I don't remember if we talked about it in Moore's episode or not but it sounds like Moore was did not return back to her family when she was 17 after everything that happened between her and Eris. And yes, I have seen the videos about how old Eris might have been around this timing. Um, Someone thinks, unless there's a continuity error, that Eris was like nine years old when he was betrothed to Moore which I think is really interesting. I don't, I don't know. I haven't done any research. Maybe we'll do a whole episode on the um, Autumn Court and the boys of the Autumn Court. Eris is one of my favorite characters currently in, um, I wouldn't say my favorite character, but one I'm most interested in currently to see the future of. Um, so I'm really excited to see like what I could maybe find about him. And so we get that about the library, but at that point, there were cranky old scholars who were there. At some point, and again, we don't know when Reese takes over as High Lord. We know that the war of the humans versus Fae happened 500 years ago. Reese was fairly young at that point. Um, I don't remember his exact age. I think we get a number, but I, I don't know. It was, he, was, he, was five, he, he was under 100 years old when he fought in the war. Or 100 years, like, he was definitely less than 200 years. I don't know if he was over 100 years or not. And if he was, it was probably, like, 130 when he was fighting in the war. That was 500 years ago. And the time between that, we don't get a lot of, up until 50 years ago, which is when Amarantha came into the picture. So somewhere in between Reese being 100, let's just say, we'll round up and say 130, between when Reese was 130 and between when he was 400 and something, which is around the time when Amarantha came into the picture, Reese became a high lord. In that time, Reese has done a lot of work. Um, I know a lot of people like to give Reese shit and say like, you know, if he was a better high lord, he can't even keep his court together. The Illyrians are still trapped. But like, they say it. I mean, Cassian even says it himself in A Court of Silver Flames. Like, change is really hard for immortal beings. And the amount of change that Reese has done, I think is actually, maybe that's just me. You know, I will always defend Reese to my dying breath against the Reese haters. Reese haters. Like, dislike Reese as a character that's all all you want but I think it'd be really unfair to discredit him for the amount of work he has done (sighs) I mean he changed the inheritance laws that directly affected Emery I mean he created a safe haven for the for the priestesses like he's done quite a bit of work we know that Moore was the one who found Clotho and Moore was the one who brought Clotho to the library. I would like to think that that was when Reese found a home for the priestesses. I, th- I would like to think it was Clotho that like kind of started it, 
because Clotho is the runner of the House of Wind Library. The name Clotho is actually one of the Greek um, fates. There's a lot we could talk about with that. She is very suspicious. She seems to have some kind of Demeti power. Um, but I think it's when when Farrah notes her body here, um, in my head, when I first was reading it, I was like, she's old, but I actually don't think she's old. I think she's actually rather young, as Meryl is actually rather young, as we're going to talk about in a second. So, I mean, young with an asterisk, but I think maybe younger than Reese and more. But under Clotho is Meryl. Meryl is Clotho's second hand. Um, so I don't know... I don't know how this shift happened. Um, I I'm can assume Reese just kind of kicked in the door one day at the bottom of the library with those scholars who probably didn't like Reese, um, as most people didn't like Reese during the change of the High Lording. Reese was, I wouldn't say soft, but Reese is soft, um, where his father is not, not great. He's not, not, I wouldn't say that Reese's father is the worst. I just don't think he was the best. Um, there's a few things about Reese's father that we learn that kind of make me think that that maybe he didn't have the same courage as Reese. Um, I mean, Reese says he was a hard man, but there were things that he did that make me think maybe he wasn't like the devil. Like I don't, I, I don't see Reese's father as the devil. Um, and maybe I'm wrong in that, but there's just a few things that kind of make me go, mm, maybe. I mean, number one, Reese's father did fight on the side of the humans. Like, he didn't have to. He could have sided with Highburn. So, like, he's just, like, one tick less worse than Highburn. And probably one tick less than Cure, because Reese's father did like more which is odd. Always, that one piece of information always stands out to me, that he liked more. Feminist, lesbian, more. <laughs> but I guess, I mean, to be fair, Reese's father did, you know, let his wife have free reign. She didn't seem to, um, she was able to live back in Illyria. It wasn't like he, like, kept her cloistered, locked away. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, and he let, it sounds like, again, um, it, from this passage, this chapter that we get where Reese is talking about more and him and what they did with the library, because they seem to have worked hand in hand more and Reese on the library project that they did here, is that more ends up, um, getting taken in by Reese's family. So Reese's dad was around for that because Reese's mom was around for that. And Reese's dad let his mom take in all of those strays. Cassian and Asriel ended up coming to Valaris as children, and they stayed in the House of Wind as children. Moore had been there for the same amount of time. I think even in A Court of Silver Flames, Cassian makes a note how they've all been living together for 500 years. So they were all children living in the House of Wind. And I can't see, like, someone who is pure evil... I'm not trying to make just, I'm not trying to justify anything about Reese's dad. This has nothing to do with today's episode. Wow. Oh my goodness. This might as well just be a chaos episode. Um, just one stream of consciousness apparently today is my theme. Um, like he's, he let Reese's mom take in all those strays. So he seemed to have, have, he must've had some soft spot somewhere. I mean, Reese says that 
like I said, again, Reese said that his dad was kind of a hard, a hard man and him and his mother didn't have like a loving relationship, but I think they had a, a respectful one. It seems like in my opinion, it might not have been love, but it was definitely respect. And I think there's something really telling about the way that Reese's father reacted to Reese's mother's death. It does drive me crazy that I don't have their names because saying Reese's father to Reese's mother is like a lot of mouthfuling, a lot of words in my mouth, and I wish that we could have a name for all these people. But within, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out my firm guess that Reese has been a high lord for around 250 years. 250 plus, um, capping at 300. I don't think he's been a high lord for any longer than 300 years. My, that's my safe guess. So this library, I would say safely has probably been around with the priestesses in it for a little under 200 years. With Clotho and Meryl being the longest standing members of the library. All of the priestesses in the library have gone through some kind of trauma or trial. When we look at a character like Meryl, um, I think there's something, there is an interesting question that goes on with Nesta and Gwen, and we're going to talk about it in literally one second, so we might as well just jump into it. Let's talk about Meryl. The name is a gender-neutral name that stems from some Celtic, mostly European um, descent, and it means sparkling sea or sea bright. That's basically it. That's all I could really gather from it. The problem with this particular spelling is that there was <laughs> a man, I think his name was like John Merrill, who wrote a pretty famous mythology poem. So all of my researching just kind of circled back to him when I was trying to like look into myths about people with the name. And so I gave up. So if you know any mythology with this name, feel free to DM me on Instagram as a happy hermit. And that's all I got for any sort of outside references. And I don't really see the name holding too much meaning from what we know about her. Nothing about her is sea-like. Her eyes, which we'll talk about in a second, like they, they, I guess they could be like sparkling or bright, but not like the sea. I would save that for Gwen. Gwen's eyes. But I don't know. The very first thing that we learn about Meryl is her name and the fact that Gwen works for her and she is Clotho's right hand, who is a fiercely demanding scholar. I think that the way that people describe her is fascinating, is utterly fascinating, because on one hand, yeah, she's kind of a B-I-T-C-H, but on the other hand, I am kind of enthralled by her, and I don't know if that's a red flag about me, <laughs> because, I mean, I guess maybe everybody who likes Nesta will understand why I'm a little bit enthralled by her, because she is snotty and she is stuck up, but I think there's something about her that I love, and we'll talk about it in a, in a second. It's something to do with her room, um, <laughs> but we learn this about, about her in 
Akasif 13. We learn a lot about her in Akasif 13, and Gwen says this. I work for someone who is very demanding. Memory tugged at Nesta. Someone named Meryl. Clotho had told her the other day, her right hand. I take it that you're not fond of the person? Gwen leaned against one of the shelves, crossing her arms with a casualness that bellied the priestess's robes. Again, she wore no hood, no blue stone atop her head. Honestly, while I consider many of the females here to be my sisters, there are a few who are not what I would consider nice. <laughs> Mesta snorted. Gwen again peered down the row. You know why we're all here. Shadows swarmed her eyes, the first Nesta had seen there. We all have injured, she rubbed her temple. So I hate, I hate to even speak ill of any of my sisters here, but Meryl is unpleasant to everyone, even Clotho. Because of her experiences. I don't know. Gwen said. All I know is I was assigned to work with Meryl and aid her in her research, and I might have made a teensy mistake. She grimaced. What manner of mistake? Gwen blew out a sigh towards the darkened ceiling. I was supposed to deliver Volume 7 of The Great War to Meryl yesterday, along with a stack of other books. I could have sworn I did. But this morning, while I was in her office, I looked at the stack and saw I'd given her volume eight instead. Nesta reined in her eye-rolling. And this is a bad thing? She'll kill me when it's not there for her to read today. Gwen hopped from foot to foot, which could be any moment. I got away the instant I could, but the book isn't on the shelf. She halted her fidgeting. Even if I found the book, she'd spot me swapping it into the pile. And you can't tell her? Gwen couldn't be serious about the killing thing. Though, with the fairies, Nessa supposed it might be a possibility, despite this place being one of peace. Gods, no. Meryl doesn't accept mistakes. Then, Gwen ends up leaving. Nesta and the house have a private conversation where the house is said to have left and then it returns with the book, and we feel another cat-like sensation brushing around Nesta's legs. In this, I'm going to, section, chapter 13, there's a lot of pieces, moving pieces, so we're going to break it down section by section within chapter 13, which usually we just do one full bit of a chapter and then break it down, but because there's so much in this chapter, we're going to do it section by section. So in this section, we learn that she's demanding, rude, smart, and has endured some type of something that has led her to be brought to the House of Wind. What I want to focus in on that is not on whatever she's endured, because it's whatever, um, we don't know, is that I want to bring to the fact that Reese is the one, Reese and Moore, the two people who are bringing people here. Nobody else knows about what's going on in the library. It's not like some hushed underground fight club-esque situation here. They are the, they, somehow somebody tells them we know someone or something has happened here. They go and they offer up a place for them. So Moore or Reese are the ones who brought Meryl there. Meryl 
has always known and had a fascination with realms and stuff, which we're going to talk about in a second. Reese, <laughs> we talk about this all the time with his orrery. We talked about it last week. Reese built his orrery himself. You're trying to tell me that Reese didn't pluck Meryl up and then never had afternoon tea with her to chat about the worlds. <laughs> I, she was brought there by probably Reese. It's alluded, basically, that Reese is the one who brought her there. And that makes my, like, ooh, that makes my, like, arms shake. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, thinking about what they know between each other. Fascinated. I'm fascinated. Because who is she working for? That's kind of my question. I don't think someone like Meryl would just be doing busy work. And I don't, I mean, I guess I don't really know much about, like, a scholar, like, in quotes. Like, what do they do? Just, like, write research papers for themselves? Like, I don't really understand. It's work. So who are they working for? Who are they doing all this research and information for? And for what reason? Because how are they going to publish it for the rest of the world to see without it being, like, University of Valaris? And everyone's going to be like, where's University of Valaris? Like, that doesn't... I, am I thinking too hard? Probably. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> We've talked about the book, um, The Great War, Volume 7, of course, number 7. We Sevens are my number this past uh, two weeks since I started doing the research on the mystics and kind of ended up in a big old tailspin on sevens and I made a TikTok on the sevens and just sevens in general are like in my face all the time now. But, and I think we talked about it in the Gwen episode as well. Um, she said she could have sworn she did, which is an SJM trigger phase, as we I say every time I come across that sentence. So basically it did happen, but something nefarious has gone, gone afoot. There is a, there is a mystery that no one's paying attention to because, <laughs> and she gave her book eight instead. I think it's so hilarious to me as I was typing out my notes for this episode. Doo -doo 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 -doo. So where was volume seven? Where did the house go to retrieve volume seven? I think it would be hilarious if sometime in the next books, someone is shelving and they actually have two versions of the great war two versions of volume seven as if the house actually somehow fabricated a second book either from another reality or from somebody else's library and now somebody else's like helian's library is now missing volume seven because the house of wind took the sentient house of wind took helian's copy and brought it to <laughs> Valaris. And I mean, on top of that, you're trying to tell me that the Great War volume one through eight is like the hot ticket item. Everyone's checking out volume one through eight. <sighs> I don't know. I know. I know it's like, it's just something that one little particular bit of like, I could have sworn I gave it to her. Where did the house go to get it? And like, who had it? And why? Why did they have it? Out of all the books in the whole library. There's only a couple dozen priestesses there. The books aren't leaving the premises. Like, so 
there's something there and I don't know if it's just me latching on to just nothing or what but I am I am suspicious I am sus you know this is when we actually see mural this coming section Nesta gets the house of wind to give her maybe Helian's copy of why I find like that's my headcanon is it's actually Helian's copy of the book. <laughs> Poor Helian. He's the butt of all my jokes. Um Nesta goes into Meryl's room and this is where my infatuation of Meryl actually kind of comes into play and it's this. Nesta opened the door to a rectangular cell of a room occupied by a desk on the far side and two bookshelves lining both long walls. A small pallet lay to the left of the desk, a blanket and pillow neatly aligned, as if the hooded priestess, with her back to Nesta, sometimes couldn't be bothered to return to the dormitory to sleep. I'm sorry, that's the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. You're trying to tell me she just curls up in her little office like a cat and reads her books like throughout the night? doing your little research i'm sorry that's me that's literally that that's me doing research on sjm like you want to know what i look like coming up with all the notes and all my stuff and doing all my notes for sjm that's a a palette on the floor (laughs) next to my books (laughs) i just drag my dog's bed over and snuggle into that instead of like walking you know three feet to my bedroom i i adore i adore mural solely for she has a bed in her office when she cannot be bothered to leave because the theorying is just too good iconic she she is a woman of the people i love it and i know that i'm probably the only person but i'm okay with that but we get a description of her in the next section, and it says, Meryl turned at that, and Nestig was greeted with a surprisingly young face, and a stunningly beautiful one. All the high fae were beautiful, but Meryl made even more look drab. Her hair was as fresh as snow contrasted against the light brown of her skin, and eyes the color of a twilight sky. Blinked once, twice, as if focused on the here and now on not whatever work she'd been doing. She noted Nesta's leathers and her lack of robes or stone atop her braided hair and demanded, who are you? Then a little further down it says, Meryl's remarkable eyes narrowed. She looked as young as Nesta, yet an ornery sort of energy buzzed around her. Who gave you those orders? And then her and Nesta go in kind of to a tit-for-tat conversation and bounces back and forth, and she ends up kind of implying there's some sort of hierarchy between the levels. She's in level two. Clotho is assumedly level one. Rosalind is level four. Um, <laughs> poor Rosalind. She gets the butt of Meryl's whatevering. So she's young. She has white hair and light brown skin. The only person who has white hair other than someone who was old in the SJM universe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I did as much digging as I possibly could into to hair, um, is Manon, actually. Manon has white, moon white hair. Rowan has silver hair. There is a difference. Jezeba has ash blonde hair. 
I have been both gray. I've been gray and I've been ash blonde. Ash blonde still has yellow tints to it. So there's a, like, someone's like, could Meryl and Jezebel be the same person? I think not. <laughs> um, just by the descriptions of themselves, unless Jezebel is a shapeshifter as well. Um, Jezebel is in chapter 11 of House of Earth and Blood. She is described as this. Despite having less than 10 minutes and despite using most of that time to make some very important calls, Jezebel's flowing navy dress was immaculate, revealing tantalizing glimpse of a lush female body adorned with freshwater pearls in her ears and throat. Her cropped ash blonde hair glowed in the golden first light lamps. Cut shorter on the sides and longer on the top, effortlessly chic and casual, her face, her face was both young and wise, bedroom soft and yet foreboding. Her pale gray eyes gleamed with glittering magic, alluring yet deadly. Bryce never dared ask why Jezebel had defected from the witches centuries ago, why she aligned herself with the House of Flame and Shadow and its leader, the Underking, and what she did for him. She called herself a sorceress now, never a witch. So, I don't see them being the same person. I think that the more interesting theory that I've heard is that Jezebel is actually Clotho, which would be super interesting. But again, I don't see it happening plausibly. I think that the theories end up coming from the fact that Jezebel has both the Book of Breathings and The Walking Dead two books that have been seen in other SJM series. The Walking Dead was last seen in Kingdom of Ash, um, and it tends to just appear when somebody needs it. Could it just have jumped ship uh, in Aurelia and moved to Crescent City because eventually Bryce might, might have needed it? Maybe. Um, the Book of Breathings ends up there because... Fairy yeets it into the cauldron when the cauldron is, um, was broken and was threatening to take Perithian with it because it was kind of throwing a temper tantrum that it didn't have Elaine as a bride. I don't know. <laughs> so that's why those two books happen to be there, ha happen to be in Crescent City. I should actually preference how it came into Jezebel's collection, whole separate story. So that's where the idea of maybe Jezebel is a world walker comes from and could could then she be Clotho because Clotho's buy all these books and blah, 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 blah. This is excellent questions. Um, is that why we haven't seen Clotho's face? Is it because we're going to recognize her from somewhere else? I don't know why Clotho would be so, you know, why Jezebel, if she was Clotho, would be like so jo jovial and kind and, you know, whatever in Perithian, but then the Jezeba in Crescent City. Like, I feel like her personality would definitely translate, which is where the is Jezeba Merrill kind of comes in because they both have similar ornery attitudes. That word always cracks me up because I always think of my husband's grandfather and he refuses to like have ice cream after a certain part of the day because he is convinced if you have ice cream after like five o'clock <laughs> that you're destined to have an ornery attitude the next day like I don't know why but it's something that's just been imprinted in my head so like maybe 
maybe Mural and Jezebel have an ice, a late night ice cream problem, and that's why they're always so crabby. <laughs> that's just there. But back to Mural and her appearance is that she's more beautiful than more. This is a red flag to me. There's actually quite a few red flags here. More is meant to be the match of Faye perfection, the same as Resand is. Resand is unnaturally beautiful. Farah notes it, Nesta notes it, and Aelin notes it. I mean, Aelin's fallen through the worlds, and the first thing she clocks is how beautiful Reese is. Like, <laughs> like that's gotta be very beautiful if you're going, I would be, I mean, I have a fear of heights, so, like, I'd be, like, super panicking, so it'd be a lot, it had to be a lot to get me to stop panicking over what's going on, to just focus on some random dude's face. So, the fact that Meryl is more beautiful than more, maybe even more beautiful than Reese, is a red flag to me, because I've always attributed all that unnatural beauty to go hand in hand with, um, at least with Reese, with Valk heritage. You get that with Manon, you get that with Erwin, you get that with Maeve, you get that with just everyone who's like humanoid and Valg. They have this unnatural, almost disturbing beauty about them. Um, Aelin, when she's in air fire, when the Valg princes are attacking her, she notes like how beautiful they are. So that's kind of where I've always been like, so now I'm like, okay, red flag, and the Valve red flags are going to continue on in a second, but we're going to talk about her power in a minute. She has twilight-colored eyes, stunning twilight-colored eyes. Twilight, dusk. Okay? Okay. Keep that in your mind for when we talk about the western wind thing. I'll, I'll bring it back up, don't worry. You don't actually have to remember because I'm going to ramble some more. And then I want to focus in, this is where the, um, is Mural a mystic thing kind of comes into play, is she blinked once and then twice as if focusing on the here and now. The blinking thing is something that Elaine does when she's in her seer mode. She, like, blinks a few times and, like, comes back to reality. So that little note kind of, like, heckles me, especially later in this chapter, Meryl's brilliant, horrible, but brilliant. When she first came here, she was obsessed with these theories regarding the existence of different realms, different worlds, living on top of each other without even knowing it. Whether there is merely one existence, our existence, or if it might be possible for worlds to overlap, occupying the same space but separated by time and a whole bunch of other things. I can't even begin to explain them to you because I barely understand them myself. And then she goes on to say, Nessa chuckled, I can imagine, but she's researching something else now. Yes, thank the cauldron. She's writing a comprehensive history of the Valkyries. The who? A clan of female warriors from another territory. They were better fighters than the Illyrians, even. The Valkyrie name was just a title, though. They weren't a race like the Illyrians. They hailed from every type of fae, usually recruiting from birth or early childhood. They had three stages of training, novice, blade, and then finally, Valkyrie. To become one was the highest honor in their land. Their territory is gone now, subsumed into others. And then they go on to say that the Valkyrie history and training were mostly oral, so any accounts that we have 
are through whatever passing historians or philosophers or tradespeople wrote down. It's just bits and pieces scattered in various books. No primary sources beyond a few precious scrolls. Meryl got it into her head years ago to begin compiling it into one volume. Their history, their training techniques. So sus. So sus. So Meryl was obsessed with the theories in regarding different realms when she first came here couple hundred years ago at the most. And we've talked about this particular passage one in a million times. We're not going to discuss it, even though my head kind of had like a random theory that kind of popped out. And it was that the biggest question about this passage is that the overlapping worlds, what if it's only overlapping because 1500 years ago, someone used the harp and rearranged the world kind of thing? And they weren't actually supposed to overlap because we know that they're planets. We know that it's planets, not necessarily realms. I don't know. That's just a, that was just a Lillian thought while I was having, when I was reading it out loud, um, that I'm not going to really discuss today, (laughs) maybe some other time, but then randomly one day for no reason at all, she just drops her research on realms and worlds and the word and erd and all of that stuff, which is something that the mystics do deal with, the worlds and finding out, planning out where the worlds are. And now Reese knows how the stars and the planets align, even though they don't have telescopes or spaceships and Brithian. Suspicious to me. That's where my theory of her being a mystic kind of comes into play, the blinking and then also her ability to know this. And then there's also another piece to it in a second. We'll read when her and Nesta have another spat. But randomly, one day, for no reason at all, Mural's like, I'm going to start writing about Valkyries. And it just so happens that a few years later, that research becomes important and we actually get Valkyries again. Suspicious. Also suspicious because this is the exact same time when Gwen is talking about her story in the right, when she's in the right. She says, Gwen began working with Meryl at Clotho's request. Clotho, whose name goes in hand in hand with the fates, requested that Gwen, who will eventually become a Valkyrie, work with Meryl when she starts pivoting towards researching the Valkyries. Gwen was only, only, only a little bit helping Meryl when she was transitioning because Gwen was one of the priestesses who were attacked by Hybern only two years ago. So I think it's really suspicious <laughs> that there was just like a really sudden shift change and not even like, you know, bleeding from realms to worlds or from the existence of the word and all that stuff to, um, you know, stars and, and stuff like that. But like, it, it wasn't like a seamless transition. It was like a, an abrupt, an abrupt change in topics, which I know sometimes I'm just like, all right, I'm done talk- thinking about this. And I'll just like move on to my own theory. Like, cause I'm a theory girl. I'm not theory in like the real world sense, but you know, same logic applies. Sometimes you just kind of feel like, all right, I'm done thinking about this. I'm moving on to the next thing, which is fair. But also usually there's like a streamline of consciousness that happens. Maybe there was, maybe like, she's like, maybe the Valkyries disappeared to another realm. And like, that's where she kind of like tumbled through all of this, which fair, but we don't get that 
middle piece of like what 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 it was the shift because like I said for me like it started I was looking at Meryl and then I started thinking about mystics and then I was thinking about Reese being a mystic and so then I did research on the mystics and then I did like it just kind of like tumbles over and over into like different things and spirals out of control and I'm like I wonder if that's kind of like maybe that's something that happened with Meryl or suspiciously Clotho the fates brings in a Valkyrie maybe she's a mystic and like her mystic senses were tingling and she's like I need to start researching the Valkyries now because they're going to be important later kind of thing I don't know in the next, uh, in chapter 27, Gwen brings up the topic of the dread trove to Meryl, and it says, I even asked Meryl last night. She broke through the glamour, but beyond a few mentions of an old text, she couldn't find any more than what you already know. I just, now that she, now she knows about the dread trove, I kind of wonder if anything's going to come to fruition from that. If she, she seems like the kind of person who doesn't let things go. And so I wonder if she's not going to let this go. And I wonder what kind of information she's got uh, brewing. I'd be really interested to see that. In Acts of 29, Gwen runs to Nesta and she's like, I don't know how, but Meryl learned that you swapped out the book. Gwen says, I don't know how she swapped out the book, but then Meryl says it was something as simple as Nesta's scent was on it. But wouldn't Gwen kind of know that? I don't know. It's kind of suspicious, whatever. And then... Gwen runs up to them and it says this. When I'm in a fury is what? Gwen winced, turning slowly as the white-haired beauty appeared from the gloom, her pale robes fluttering behind her as if on a phantom wind, the blue stone atop her hood flickering with light. Gwen bowed her head, face paled. And then it says, Meryl turned her remarkable eyes to Nesta, I do not appreciate thieves and liars. Neither do I, Nesta said coolly, lifting her chin. Meryl hissed. You tried to play me for a fool in my very own office. She didn't so much as look at Gwyn, who, who cringed away. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you mean when I went to see the book that my insane assistant had incorrectly given me? Oh, yes, I knew about that from the start, and I found the proper volume instead with your scent upon it. It wasn't you who did it? Meryl looked between Gwen and Nesta. It is inexcusable to ask others to make up for your own stupidity and carelessness. Gwen's fear grated against her senses, and Nesta said, voice dropping, Gwen did no such thing. And who cares? Are you so bored down here that you have to invent these dramas to entertain yourself? She waved a hand the open walkway behind Meryl. We're both busy. Clear off and let us work in peace. Someone gasped a level above, and Meryl laughed that phantom around her whispering. Do you not know who I am, girl? I know that you're keeping us from our work, Nesta said with a flat calm she knew made people irate. And I know that this is a library, but you hoard books like it's your own personal collection. Meryl bared her teeth. You think I do not know you? The human girl who was shoved into the cauldron and came out high fay, The female who slew the king of Highburn and held his head up like a trophy as his blood rained down upon her. 
Surprise lit Gwen's face at the graphic depiction. Nessa didn't allow herself so much as a swallow. The wind whispers to me even here under so much stone, Merrill said. It finds its way through the cracks and murmurs the ongoing of the world in my ear. Merrill snorted. Do you think you are entitled to do as you please now? Nesta's power thrummed in her veins. She stomped on it, shoving it down and strangled it. I think you like to hear yourself talk too much. I am descended from Raboth, Lord of the Western Wind. Meryl seethed. Unlike Gwyneth Berdara, I am no lackey to be dismissed. To hell with this witch, to hell with restraint and hiding, Nesta let enough of her power simmer to the surface that she knew her own eyes glowed, let it crackle even as she ignored its wild, unholy bellowing. Gwen backed away a step. Even Meryl blinked as Nesta said, with a fancy title like that, surely such a petty grudge should be beneath you. Nesta smiled, savage and cruel. Meryl only glanced between her and Gwen before saying, Get back to your work, nymph. Wind snapping at her heels, Meryl stalked into the gloom. And then a little further down it says, But it wasn't until Meryl's brisk wind faded that Gwen leaned against the stack. Then a little further down Gwen says that Meryl throws those windy temper tantrums that can send everyone's manuscripts scattering. So the the main focus that I want to kind of bring her attention to is is Meryl's power. Um, she has a phantom wind. Her pale robes flowed behind her on a phantom wind. This phantom wind term. Um, is not mutually exclusive to people with wind powers. We know that there's a phantom wind around Reese and that can open and shut doors, kind of stuff like that. It happens quite a bit. We have daddy phantom hands. Like, this phantom breeze thing is not mutually exclusive to just people with wind powers. Though, people with wind powers would be, like, Rowan, Tam, and Farah, all the white thorns, Vera makes a note when I was looking into people with wind powers. She wasn't sure wh whose court she got her wind shield from, and I don't really remember if that was ever answered. I can't think of if it was ever answered, aside from when Tamlin throws out um, a spring breeze when they're saving Elaine. So it could have even just came from Tamlin himself, and she just didn't realize it. It seems like Tamlin doesn't actually access his powers quite often, which I think is fascinating because I'd really like to know what his powers really are and if he has earth powers like we see um, some of the characters in Crescent City having. So, I mean, that was off topic. But anyways, is this... So she talks about the wind, the wind whispering to her through even all the stone. Is this the same wind that the bone carver talks about, that Amran talks about, that Lanthes talks about, that the Surreal talks about, that talks about, that Koshi talks about. Like, there's so many people, so I'm gonna assume it's the same wind. And, you know, all of these people, the, the Bone Carver, Amran, Lanthes, the Surreal, Az, Koshi, Kashi, um, all have Valg-like traits. So I think it's interesting that all of them, um, are able to hear the wind in that fashion. 
and that she also, which again, back to her being so remarkably beautiful, being a red flag. I mean, Azriel is the most conventionally attractive out of the Bat Boys. He's got a lot of vagueness in him. You know, the B, you know, the bone carver, I, he's typed in as the BC in all of my notes. Um, his sister had black blood. So, you know, there's ties there. His twin, she was his birth twin. So if she is black blood, then I might assume that he also has black blood. Uh, I don't know if he would be valid though. That is a question for a deeper dive. But all of this wind, they all are able to hear this wind as if, I don't know, something else. I don't know. It's interesting. Hmm. How did she know so much? So she ends up in great detail. She describes the beheading of Hybern. I actually am pretty big on, in all of my notes, in, or not my notes, in all of my annotations of the books, uh, whenever someone talks about Nesta being the Kingslayer, I actually, like, write some profane words, and I'm like, it was actually Elaine. It was Elaine who did it. Um, the female who slew the King of Hybern and held his head up like a trophy as his blood rained upon her. How did she get such a detailed description? She's never left the House of Wind Mountain, the library. Um, how did she know? And that's kind of where the, the mystic thing came into play. Could she see it? Or mystics people that just hear the wind or, and then take a bathtub? Like, what, what is it that gave, gives her all of this, you know, deep description? I mean, the wind is gossiping. It, the, the, the tea is piping hot if it's given that much description, not just like, you know, hey, some girl cut the skies out off. Like, it was like a detailed, like, they were writing fanfic and sending it out to their besties, like, on the wind. <laughs> and then she makes this note about the Western Wind. She is a descendant of the Lord of the Western Wind. I looked into that name. Uh, I couldn't find anything. If anybody else has any idea what where that name comes from, let me know, because I dug for a very long time, could not find anything. But I I did start digging into the Western wind. And that's where I'm going to focus m m the last bit of our time on is Zephnir or Zephyrus, the Greek god or personification of the Western wind. Meryl's eyes are the color of twilight, dusk, the sun, this, this makes me, I'm trying not to scream into the microphone because that would be bad for your ears. The sun sets in the west. It is dusk in the west. Mural is a descendant of the western wind, west. Her eyes are the color of twilight, dusk. The sun, dusk, sets, is in the west. <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> Elaine, when she is looking for the surreal, she says it moves through the world like, like the breath of the western wind, as if the surreal who knows all truths when asked, the breath of the western wind is the voice of the western wind. What, huh? I had, um... <laughs> I had an unhinged bone carver theory, surprise there, um, when I was doing notes for this, and the western wind, 
whoever this is, the wind, whoever is speaking to people, seems to have knowledge that it's the un, uh, all seeing knowledge. <clears throat> all seeing knowledge. The bone carver ends up saying, How the wind moans her name, can you hear it too? Nesta, Nesta, Nesta. Unhinged, unhinged. Okay, I know it's unhinged. I know I have a problem. But when the all-seeing one is in the past with Dorian and Koa chapter 9, when he's talking with Gavin, a bone, a dusty, bone-dry, cold wind rattled through the past in confirmation. I don't have the direct quote, but it's something like that. Bone carver, wind, the wind all-knowing. Mm, there's, look, I'm insane. I know I'm insane, but in my little insane bone carver simp head, I'm like, that makes sense. But there are other ways to spin this. Um, the witches, there was a phantom breeze around Manon, the witches and the Western wastes. We know the witches have some, somehow the witches have an ability to fly. And it's always bothered me that I've never figured out where that ability came from, that drive for them to fly, why their brooms can lift off the air. I don't know why, but it's there. But there's a west, there's a wind that loves to tug at, at Manon's hair throughout the whole series, especially when she puts on the crown of stars. It's there. Um, Kashi, Koshi whispers on the wind. We have the song of the wind. The Illyrians hear the song of the wind, the call of the wind. The witches hear the call of the wind. We have the wind haven with them, but also Ataraxia sung the song of the wind or something like that. The heart song of the wind. There's that. And then Amran says, because the stone beneath this house has ears and the wind has ears, all of it is listening. The house of wind, redstone, summoning salt, someone listening. Huh, huh, the wind has ears, it's listening. Mm, mm, mm. And would report back where to the prison? Who was sitting at the prison at the time? Hmm, interesting. It was the bone carver, wasn't it? That's so interesting, remarkable. Wonder where that comes from. <laughs> One of the very few times that the term witch is used is actually here in reference of Meryl with all this. She's got white hair like Manon. She's got remarkable eyes like Manon. Um, she's got wind like Manon. I don't know. She's kind of, uh, seems like she has too much ice cream like Manon, as my husband's grandfather would say. And that's, that's kind of it. That's all I wanted. There's, there's not much else to talk about with her aside from a few sus things where Meryl was at the dusk service when Nesta has the vision of the dusk court and the harp. Meryl is the one who leads the prayers and she also sings. That song was the song that ends up leading, um, Nesta to that vision, her unwitting scrying, which I would always like to attribute with, you know, Gwen's light singer abilities, but maybe there's more to it than that. When Nesta actually has the harp in her hands, she actually thinks back directly and by name to Meryl's research. So I think that 
I think, as we were just talking about, like, a little bit earlier, that now that the glamour has been broken off, I wonder if Meryl's gonna have a little bit more information the longer she sits with it, with her theories. And I wonder if maybe someone's gonna talk to Meryl about, you know, the harp and, and its abilities and the realms and all that stuff, because she seems to have a host of information about that. Maybe, if that's how... <gasps> okay, so... In my head, one of the things that has to happen when Bryce is in Perithian is that she's going to have to go down to the library. And when she's in the library, she's going to feel that cat-like presence. Maybe Adis is just going to like, hey girl, been waiting for you. I built this army to help you. Isn't that awesome? I'm such a great granddaddy. I mean, that's... Have I ever talked about the granddaddy thing about Adis? I can't remember if I've ever talked about the granddaddy thing with Adis. There's a joke between the hive mind, the girls who were on the podcast, my best friends, um, that Adis and Thea were the ones who had, Thea's children were actually Adis and everyone who's a descendant of the, you know, them, you know, Reese, maybe even Aelin, like, Yurene, all of them, anyone who has starborn abilities kind of, like, goes back to Adis and Thea, and so there's kind of, like, a joke that Adis is rounding up all of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. That was where the granddaddy thing came from. But what the why would why would Bryce need to go down to the library to talk to Meryl about the worlds and realms and all that stuff? Because she has a bunch of information on it and they're gonna be need help with the heart. That would work out so well. I'm almost scared of how I thought of that. Um that would be why she would go to the library. That's when she would feel the cat-like presence and that, oh my goodness, all the information. I hope, I hope that 90% of HOFAS is just pure info dump. I want history lessons. I want info dumps. I want descriptions of magic. I want, uh, uh. I know it's going to be boring for everybody else in the world, but for me, I'm like info dump all over me, Sarah. If it was just Amran in a monotone voice reading a history book for 980 pages, 100% I would be the happiest person in the world. In the world! And I think that's a great place to end today's episode. Um, speaking of Amran, I feel like in my heart, we should do a character deep dive on Amran next. But, I don't know. I've been working on it for a while now, and then some one of my mutuals asked if I would do it, and I have been asked to do a character deep dive by someone on the Patreon, so it's been something I've been slowly working on, and I think it feels right to do it. So yeah, I think that's what we're going to do next. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, thank you so much for being along with my one stream of consciousness that just seemed to never end and flow, flow, flow. Um, very interesting episode. Not quite a character deep dive, not quite theory, but some weird mix in between. I don't know. It was fun. I got a lot of vitamin D today, um, so I'm in a good mood. <laughs> That's probably why I'm just blabbering along, like, happy, like, happy little clam. Talking about Sarah J. Mass. La, 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 la. Um, but thank you. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you so much for loving it. I... I'm eternally grateful that you guys listen and love and I just, I love seeing you guys. I, I don't know. I, I'm enthralled and I'm, I'm honored and humbled and any other word I could think of in my small vocabulary that I just, I am so thankful that you guys are along the ride with me and spend, you know, an hour, an hour and a half once a week with me and, and my TikToks and on my Instagram, like, just that you guys are along with the ride with me is just never, 
never not amazing to me and makes me a little choked up to think about knowing how much you know this podcast means to me but also how much it means to other people and I just hold that with the highest highest regard and I hope you guys know that I adore you all for listening and for having just fun with me just talking about this and and loving loving Sarah as much as I love Sarah and as much as you love Sarah and we're all just loving Sarah together in this very interesting community as we wait so very very patiently for how fast that was my little love letter to you guys like I said I got some sun today I'm uh, the the weather's gonna be great this week I'm gonna be working outside all week this week while I finish up uh Amarin's character deep dive to record this week and then yeah I'm I'm just so excited I love I just love this I love you guys Anyways, I hope you have a good week. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you to the Patreon for allowing me to buy that audiobook just so I could re-listen to how to pronounce everything over and over and over again. Um, you guys are amazing to me, and I am so, so, so thankful that you're here. Anyways, that's all I have to say for tonight and my outro. I'll see you guys next week. I hope you have a lovely week. I hope you guys get some sun wherever you are. Soak it in. Get the happy rays. I'm like a plant. I need to photosynthesize or else I get really depressy. And we were getting no sun for a long, long while there. And now we're finally getting sun. I feel like my wilted leaves are like sitting back up and I feel energized and ready to dive right back into everything. It's amazing. It's amazing what just like 20 minutes of sun will do for me. It's, my houseplants are, like, I always, like, call my houseplants pathetic because, like, they'll be, like, so dramatic. I'll move them from, like, one spot to another and they, like, fall to the ground. Like, oh, my goodness, mother, why would you do that? And then it's, I am, I am the dramatic plants because all I need to do is displace myself into the sun and all my leaves start, like, perking back up and whatnot. All right, I need to go. I'm just going to keep blabbering. You guys don't want to hear me blabber about anything but SJM. So thank you so much. Have a lovely week. I'll see you next week and goodbye.